Welcome to the REI Mastermind Network, where host Jack Haas gathers amazing stories from leaders in real estate investing. In each episode, our guests will tell you what they're doing that works, what they've tried that failed, and best of all, you'll learn actionable steps to take your real estate investing to the next level. Now, here's Jack with another value-packed episode. We have Leslie Ann Morris with me here today, and you're going to find most of her content, including a link tree, everything you need on Instagram. So find her at leslie.ann.morris, and I'll make sure to have that direct link in the show notes that makes it all easy and clickable for everyone. But I really appreciate you ta- your time here, Leslie, as we talk all things tied to short-term rentals. So I I really appreciate it. We always spend a little time talking about how you got into this. And I want to keep that part of it a bit short because I'm sure you're tired of telling this over and over again. But it's always interesting. Most real estate, especially in niche like short-term rentals, seems to be an accidental occupation, if anything. So how did you accidentally find your way to short-term rentals? Yeah, I had a deal. I was trying to just get into real estate outside of flipping my own homes I was living in. And so I was going to buy just a single family home, you know, long term tenant, 12 month situation. And that deal fell apart overnight. And then it started to worry me. I was like, if this guy can just change his mind, decide not to sell his house. What if my tenant decides to stop paying their rent? And I don't even know because the property that across the United States. So then I went back to the drawing board on where I really wanted to put my money and where my passions lied. And I had been like a worldwide traveler. I've been all over the world. And so something about vacation rental ownership really resonated with me. So I decided to just give that. And I bought a cabin in 2019 when I was living in L.A. in the Smoky Mountains in eastern Tennessee. And then fast forward to today, I now have 11 and I'm building one. So in very short amount of time went all in on short-term rentals. (laughs) Yeah. And now you're building one. How has that experience been compared to just acquiring? Not recommended. (laughs) It's not. If you're investing for cash flow, it's not a cash flow game straight out of the gate. Of course, when you finish the build, you're going to have higher amount of equity in the build. But I'm already like, I've held the land for two years. And to find a builder started at the worst possible time when lumber was super expensive and builders were in high demand. And so the timelines just run amok, but we have not even broken ground yet. So we have a driveway, we have septic permitting, we're really close to breaking ground. So check back with, in with me in, I don't know, 29 more years. <laughs> yeah, I bet. So you found this, the first short-term rental. How did you locate, did you travel to the area, liked it, and that's where things started? No, actually, I was just Googling different things about where to invest your money, where's low price per square foot, even things like how to buy a property with all cash. And some way, shape or form, I came across across, um, across a report that Airbnb puts out annually that talked about the Smoky Mountains in eastern Tennessee. It actually specifically had like their top five regions that Airbnb hosts made the most like gross revenue the prior year. And three of those top five were all in the same little small area by the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. So then I said, wow, I'm on to something. And then I just went on Zillow, found a cabin and bought it. <laughs> That's pretty much, I just took action very quickly. And I guess. Do you, would you recommend everybody do it that way? 
If it's within your comfort level, sure. I think if you don't take a risk, with high risk is high reward. Of course, there's the opposite of that. You totally fail. But failure for me has always taught me a really good lesson. So there's really no harm in just jumping. Was there any mentorship or anything that you were taking part in at this point then? Or did you read a couple books? Did you start to, to get at least to the comfort level? It sounds like you have a high threshold when it comes to risk, but I'm guessing that some are going to take a minute and be a little more cautious. Yeah. Where did, where would you recommend people start to, to get comfortable yeah. in this situation? Yeah. I had a long background in commercial banking and I was a lender. So I knew underwriting and I had clients that would tell me, you need to get into this game. This is how you build wealth for yourself. So I had that mindset around like seeing other people do it and whatnot. But I was really active and I still am today helping mentor junior investors through the Bigger Pockets community. That community has been pretty awesome. Started by Brandon Turner quite a while ago and has built into like really like a hub for just getting base knowledge. There are other tools like that. But for me, that's been really helpful. It's helping me grow my agent business today. I buy leads from them. Full disclosure. I give them money, but there's blog posts. I write a blog on there. There's blog posts. So if you're, you want to learn specifically about the short-term rental asset class, it's a great place to start. You're going to see some of the common people answering questions within the message boards. And if you start going to like their annual conference, you'll get to know like the network is tight. Everybody knows one another. So that's a great place. And I was involved in that when I started in the Smoky Mountains, like reading and learning and I just feel plugged in a lot of gaps, though, and learned as I went after I bought my first property. So that's learning by doing is a great strategy as well, which I highly recommend. Would you ever recommend somebody starting in their backyard or would you recommend doing what you did and invest across the country like this? Yeah, actually, I tried to. There was it was like a lot of things happening at once in that small amount of time when I began investing, where before I made that offer on the first cabin in Tennessee, I was like, oh, I could look at Palm Springs because I was living in Los Angeles. I knew that was like a highly desirable Airbnb buzz term area because of the swimming pools and the beautiful homes. But I was talking to an agent out there and he was like, yeah, your budget's not going to support what you want. And then look into the regulations around short-term rentals within that market because it's not heavily, it wasn't at the time heavily restrictive, but it was restrictive in a sense that you only could have so many stays per year in that market. And you want to really make sure your underwriting is well thought through because if you're getting in trouble for regulations because you had too many stays, but that's how you afford your operating cost, then that's just not, it's not a viable solution. So for me, I was like, eh, that's not really going to work. And so mm -hmm. what's that next thing look like? And that's how I went to Tennessee. You brought up regulations. Are there any kind of other things that people should be aware of when they're considering a short-term rental like this? Yeah, for sure. So in my market in the Smoky Mountains, it's a, your traditional, typical vacation market. It's not heavily regulated. There are little pockets where you can't do short-term rentals. But for the most part, it's the municipalities there, the cities and counties, they live off of the transient occupancy tax. So these tax dollars that we pay to them that we collect from our guests is a big way that the community is, that's what it thrives on. So it's not heavily regulated in my market, but there are other markets. Like I, I'm in Nashville right now. I own a property here that I'm at about half the time. And 
I've been considering doing some investing in Nashville and its short-term rentals are way more heavily regulated here. The permitting process is pretty extensive. So I would say if you're considering doing it in your backyard or you're looking at another, like a pocket around some lake somewhere that I have a property in Alabama that's like that. And you'll have to look at their individual regulations because it does vastly vary. And also because this is becoming more of a mainstream thing, there are areas where they're shutting it down because they don't want all the housing to be taken away by investors to put it on Airbnb. So you just have to do your due diligence before you just say, oh, I'm going to put this, I'm going to do this one as an Airbnb. Like you just can't, you don't get to just do whatever you want. (laughs) Yeah. No, I, it, it makes sense. Live in Minnesota. And you can hear it when I even say the word Minnesota. But we have a lot of HOAs to deal with on some of these. We've got 10,000 lakes. This is becoming more and more popular. And there's a bunch of lakeside HOAs that you got to deal with. So, yeah, the the local municipalities are probably going to be your biggest hurdle. Yeah, definitely. And like the HOA comment, too, I own properties in HOAs. It's not my preference to have them in HOAs because it is more restrictive. You do have to check out the CCNRs. You get that. You can get that ahead of time if you're looking at a property for potential purchase from your agent. They can get those documents for you. So you can go through and read. I guess it's like the bylaws of the community. I own a cabin on a lake in eastern Tennessee where fire pits are heavily restricted, for example, which stinks because that's a great amenity that most of our guests really enjoy. So sometimes they're trying to build their own fire in the backyard. And I'm getting fined for it. So you have to make sure you put up signage, no fires, have a fee tied to it if they do it. And you're running, you're basically running these little mini hotels and you got to, if it's in a community, you got to, you don't want to make waves with the community. That is not fun. So outside of you, you were underwriter, so you probably have a different approach to this. I'd be curious, how do you determine what is a good rental property? What are some of those data points you take a look at? Yeah. So yeah, I was in commercial banking for 20 to 25 years around that number. And we, I heavily scrutinized lots of different kinds of debt. There was lots of different kind of ratios we would look at. For these though, since these are single family residences, you don't need to calculate a cap rate or anything fancy like that. The only metrics that I really care about if I'm going to get into a deal or not is the components of net operating income and then cash on cash. So what I'm doing is I'm looking at what's the potential gross rent? What are my operating expenses? Do I need to include some sort of replacement reserve, maybe 10% or whatever, based on sometimes the furniture might go obsolete faster because I buy something that has used furniture in it. Or like I just bought it in December that I did not do a replacement reserve on because it is brand new built with a home builder warranty. So in that case, I didn't do one, but So then I'm figuring out what is that potential net operating income. And then I'm doing a calculation to look at all my year one actual cash dollars into the deal. How much return am I expecting to make for each dollar that I put in year one? And making sure that my comfort level for me, just based on how tight things are, is 20% cash on cash. And the deal I just closed on was around 23, 24%. But three years ago, I was getting 60%. So you can see the difference in how things have shifted. And then on inflationary measures, I think 
Bigger Pockets put out some sort of statistic about that just recently that they're saying you saw your rent and your ADR, your average daily rate, which is our like nightly charge for the cabins, increase by let's say it was three percent, but inflation was what five six. So you actually lost money if you really think about that strategy. So try not to do that too much because there's so many like goals that I have around being an investor. I'm not just looking for cash flow. I'm looking for all sorts of different things. Generational wealth building. Sometimes I just want to buy a property because it looks good. <laughs> but for the most part, when I break it down, I am looking to make 20% back on my money in that first sure. year. With all of that, when you're acquiring a property, are you, do you have run books and everything now where you've already pre-established these are the mattresses that are going in. This is the sofa. This is every, all of those accommodations that all predetermined, or do you design each of those properties uniquely? For the most part in this market, in the Smoky Mountains, you're buying something that's considered turnkey. Most of them come fully furnished, but I've bought ones where I'm like, the couch is garbage, the mattresses are garbage, and we throw stuff out. And then we do replace. I try to shop local. I try to support the community. I do own a property management company there and then a property acquisition company there. So I really try to work work within the guidelines of supporting local. If I can get a deal on something and the local furniture place can't can't supply it or not get it quick enough, then I look at places like Costco. I think Amazon, we get some of our towels from. But for the most part, they are coming turnkey. And then the last few properties I've bought, I've done some sort of branding on, like giving them a unique name and then trying to theme them around that name. For example, I have one that's called Whiskey Whispers. It's just a cute, highly Googleable name. It allows people to see it on Airbnb and then go, oh, maybe I'll be smart enough to Google this and not pay Airbnb the booking fee. And that does work to our advantage a lot of times. So then we get a direct booking. But at this whiskey property, we put whiskey barrels in there and moonshine paraphernalia. And there's the mini fridge bar area. So we've really themed it out for that sort of person that has the aficionado of whiskey. That person would mm. love that place. Well, that's neat. I suppose that's a way to stand out of the crowd a little bit too on that. Let's face it, Airbnb is pretty crowded these days. It is. Yeah. And I tell all my buyer clients, I'm like, you don't want to buy just the dusty, rustic cabin in the woods anymore. You really want to try to get something where it's got a hot tub, it's got a pool table, it's got a mountain view. It's got what most of the travelers that are coming to that area are searching for. That way it doesn't preclude you from getting the most amount of eyes on your listing as possible. Because there's thousands of cabins there all over in this little small area. But the mm. National Park does get any, it's been anywhere from like 12 to 14 million visitors a year. I think 2022's numbers were around 13 million. So they're in high, de they're all in high demand. And at some points during the year, they are all booked. I even own a couple that are houses that book pretty well as well. So it's just a highly sought after area. Just to remind everybody, head over to Instagram and find Leslie at leslie.ann.morris for some more information on what she's up to. We just touched briefly on that crowded marketplace that we know as Airbnb, and there's a couple others now. But what are some of the things, if you had to start over again and you're, you've got your first Airbnb, your short-term rental, what would you do to stand out and start to get notice in those bookings? Yeah, I think that's where I'm at today because I've learned over the last several years. Like At that point, when I first started investing, you could just throw anything on there and it would book. Now it's very competitive. 
So yeah, I guess just everything that I already said about branding them, making sure that you stand out. And another thing that, that we do just because I own so many units and then I do manage for others is creating partnerships with local entities. Visit Sevierville, City of Pigeon Forge. We even have some vendor relationships with like local wedding chapels that are close to our cabins. So you know, that way they're marketing on social media. We're marketing marketing on social media. So we're able to have cross, I don't know, collateralization of our companies to try to get more more bookings for both of us. Just being smart about that sort of thing. Another thing that I do to stand out because I do own the property management company is doing Google ads. I think Google ads are really smart. A lot of people, they're like, we don't want to book through Airbnb. We don't want to pay the 15%. So they will Google Smoky Mountain Cabin or something of that nature. And we, we hope that they find us, even though it is really competitive, they usually do. You mentioned the property management part of your business a couple times here now. Did you start that out of necessity? You weren't able to find who you needed in those markets? Yep, exactly. I was I started self-managing and then when I got to five cabins, I and I still had my full-time job in commercial banking, which is a demanding career. I just realized it wasn't this I can't keep doing this. I'm going to rip my hair out. So that and I also at the same time, I had a lot of people in my network saying, "Help us do what you're doing. Help us buy a cabin and manage it for us." And I was like, "I'm just not set up to do that." So I got set up to do that. Um, it's been about a year and a half, but we went full time at the beginning of 2022 as a full service boutique property management company. And I really set up the company with some gaps I saw in the marketplace with a strategy around like no circle backs to owners of cabins. So we have a strategy where we're including a lot of things in our pricing and just making it more user friendly so that I get a lot of doctors, lawyer clients with high demanding jobs where we're, we don't want to call them every time a guest is, oh, we broke a wine glass. We're going to need your credit card to go replace it. We just cover a lot of that easy stuff. Sure. What would you recommend somebody getting into this the first time or two? Find a property manager that specializes in short-term rentals or tackle it themselves? Funny you ask. <laughs> I'm writing a book right now on a passive investing strategy in short-term rentals. And that's really like my unique offering because I did realize how much work it was. And the fact that I left my job at the Bay in September of 2022 out of necessity to go full-time in the businesses that I created. So I'm like, okay, you have a couple options here. One would be if you want to do what I've done and leave your job and be in real estate full-time. Sure. Self-manage. I'm happy to coach clients that use me as an agent on how to do it. It's not difficult, but it is. it does take a certain type of mindset to do it. You might get very aggravated if someone is asking you where the TV remote is and you're in a different state, just for a bad example. But um, other things are like, we had a guest that had a water alarm going off at 2 a.m. And I was like, I didn't even know that property had a water alarm, to be honest. So finding it, locating it, shutting it off was really challenging. So yeah, if you are an investor and you invest in other asset classes and you're really curious about short-term rentals, I think it can be done really well passively, but you do have to interview and highly scrutinize the property management company. They are responsible for everything, your occupancy, how you're pricing, your communication, managing the cleaner team. There's so many little nuanced things that are involved in the running of these types of properties that not everybody can do it. And you have to have the right team in order to get it to work well. 
So, so uh, depends on the investor, I guess. That's the short answer. With that, let's say somebody is looking for a manager. And frankly, most property managers you run into are going to be traditional property managers. So the short-term rental type stuff is something that is almost an afterthought that I've experienced. What type of questions somebody should ask to ensure that their interests are aligned with the property manager they're engaging? Yeah, I mean, the first thing that I recommend is to go ahead and Google them. Google this property management company and see what do they have Google ads? What does their website look like? What does their booking website look like? There's actually one of my friends and mentors when I was creating my property management company, their property management company didn't even have a direct booking site. They were actually only on the OTAs like Airbnb and Verbo. And I was like, that's a big missed opportunity for you all. Like, how come you're not there? And they're like, we weren't thinking that that's not where our minds were at when we started the company. So now they're pivoting and going back and building out this stuff. If And then if you Google them and you can't find them, just think about how your guests are going to be and how do they show up in social media? What is the like language look like? And if you can, the biggest thing, this is all like due diligence to not even have to talk to them. Really, this is all like what you can be doing behind the scenes before you do have a conversation. But just look at their, find their listings, whether that's on Airbnb or their website, and look at their reviews and see what travelers are saying that stay there about communication, about cleanliness. And then a big, another big thing would be, I'm pretty active in Facebook and there's a bunch of Facebook groups where you can go into your local area and kind of talk to other investors that are doing the same thing that you're doing and get their opinion, get their feedback on who they're using for property management. And then some of the things that you want to ask them is really pointed, easy to answer questions. And if they stumble, you'll know. <laughs> Not yeah. a good fit. But what was your average ADR last year? What was your occupancy? How? What's your booking pace? That's how far out. What's the lead time for how, you know, are bookings coming really last minute? Are they long? What's that look like for you? Tell me about your market. Tell me about what, how did your COVID year compare to your pre-COVID year? And where are you looking now? Are you back to pre-COVID? There's a lot of questions around that. Just that should be very easy for someone to answer or easy for them to get reports and data and share that with you. You could correct me if I'm wrong, but it almost sounds like you're using these sites as part of your marketing arm. And then in, in the end, driving people to your own booking system. So you, are you hoping for those repeat visitors and building those longer term relationships? Yeah. On the traveler side, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, of course. It's interesting. I do Google ads for multiple things. I do Google ads to find buyers of cabins. I do Google ads to find travelers of cap to book cabins. And then I do Google ads to find existing owners of cabins that need new property management. And all those Google ads cohesively get different people Googling different things coming in through different channels. So all of my websites link to one another. So if a traveler accidentally comes into like the property management that's for the owners, it says book a cabin. So it's got a link back to that. But I also do retargeting and I do, I have an email newsletter. So we're gathering guest information, their email addresses and such and signing them. We run a special, you'll get a promo code. Leave us a review. Please come back and rebook. Sending those kinds of automated messages is really important to not just, I don't want to rely on first time people coming through Airbnb, but that does feed a big portion of our business. So I'm constantly putting in an effort and a strategy around revenue management and around reti customer retention. So your personal experience and success is pretty obvious, Leslie, but could you give us an example of 
one of your students, where they started off and where you helped take them. Yeah, sure. Gosh, I work with pretty much all junior buyers. That's not to say I don't work with people that are savvy and know what they're doing, but I think my unique story is it's inspired. It's awesome and inspiring to say what I've done. I think I have a easy, I have a, something within my personality that allows me to easily articulate what I've done and how I've done it. So that really motiv- motivates and drives people to reach out and contact me. But yeah, I would say there's been quite a few buyers just in the last few months where they found me on a podcast or at some sort of speak at conferences and things like that and meetups. And they're just like, can I get an hour of your time and talk to you about the Smoky Mountain market and if it would be viable for me? And so I'm always happy to give that initial hour of my time to see where they're at. So I had one client in particular. She actually is a real estate agent also, and she hangs her license at my brokerage. And I did a talk there and she's, I really want to get into this. I want to start building passive income. And I was like, I'm happy to help you. And so her first deal that she got under contract, it was a scramble because it was like a highly competitive, almost like a bid situation because it was like a very turnkey cabin. And after she did the underwriting, once she was under contract, she's, you know what, the underwriting doesn't really work. And here's what I'm looking at. And so I'm like reviewing her underwriting. I'm looking at her metrics, her lending costs, her year one cash in the deal. And I'm like, you're right. And I'm going to support you in whatever decision you make. If you decide it's not the property for you, Let's go find the one that is. And so she ended up backing out of that deal and then finding another deal probably about two months later. And I just coached her. I was like, you know, what you really want to focus on is like the mountain view. I think the mountain view right now for you is going to help your underwriting metrics lift your your ADR, your nightly rent you can charge in a way that's going to make it make those underwriting metrics work better. I think that was the thing you were lacking on the last deal. And so she agreed with me. We found the cabin. We actually wrote the offer, got it under contract on Thanksgiving. I had people messaging me through Instagram because I put case studies on there and whatnot about what I'm working on. We were going to offer on that, but we didn't want to do it on Thanksgiving. We were going to wait until the next day or two days or whatever. And I was like, ah, you snooze, you lose. So she got the property under contract, ended up negotiating a great credit to get some repairs. And now we are actually in there today. We are staging for her professional photos, which will happen tomorrow. Gave the cabin a super cute name. It's going to be Broncos Mountain Lodge after the granddad. And I'm just, I'm I'm ecstatic for her. Uh, The place is going to be a rental performer. And I'm like, this is addicting. You're going to want to buy eight more. So I have a lot of stories like that. Some, she chose to use my property management company, but some of my clients, they do choose to self-manage. And I have some of them today. I'll see, I see them share their cabins and run specials. And so I try to help promote them as well. So it's a fun, it's very fun, this asset class. I think one of those things that you brushed through there that's pretty important is those professional photos. Oh yeah. You mentioned that. I'm surprised how many people still think they can just take some, snap some photos with their cell phone and call them. You don't even want to list it with temporary photos because what happens is, and I'm speaking Airbnb speak right now, which unfortunately that's beloved to book through there. There's like a situation in their algorithm where you're a new listing. You get like a boost when your new listing goes live. They want to help Mm. you out, get those first few bookings fast. Now, if you get the boost and you have the junky photos from your cell phone, People are going to just scroll right past it. They don't care what it costs because these photos book these cabins. We spend quite a bit of money, I think $500 and up 
But you have to keep in mind the photos will probably last for a long time. As long as you don't make a major change to the property, your photos should be pretty good, pretty golden for quite a while. So it's definitely worth investing and get a photographer that's got those angles. Go on, go in your competition, look at, on Airbnb for properties that are near you, message the owners, find out who the photographer was. And I, we've done a lot of that sort of strategy to make sure that the listing is sparkling with those yeah. photos. It, it just always perplexes me. It's just, I think it's as much of a mindset thing as anything else is the concept that you'll, you'll spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on these places. And then you're going to not spend $500 to get some photos done. I don't get it. I just don't understand. Yeah, I don't get it either. I know they're like, oh, my photos are good enough. I don't know. Yeah. Leslie, this has been a great conversation and I warned you, we'll wrap things up here with some rapid fire questions. But before we do, I want to remind everybody again, Instagram, look for leslie.ann.morris. I'll make sure that is a clickable link in your show notes. But uh, Leslie, if you're ready, we'll jump through. Okay. Here's your chance to bust one real estate investing myth you've heard of over the years. What is one real estate investing myth you want to bust today? Oh, no. A myth. I don't know. My mind immediately went to anything can be fixed with money, but it's true. (laughs) That was what somebody told me when I was having, I'm having a well issue at one of my cabins. Anything can be fixed with money. You can get the water trucked in. It's true. But a myth, I don't know. I've been really on a soapbox lately about women, particularly women investors. And this is not a myth either. Honestly, I just want to talk about it. Yeah, go for it. Dale Carnegie says 90% of all wealth is created through real estate investing. It's true, not a myth. So meanwhile, only 31% of all investors are women. So women, you need to step up, girls, and get this thing going, get investing. Because it is a myth that it's a man's, a men, um, old boys club. That's a myth. We're breaking that myth today. And and frankly, I've heard that as well. But the myth, I think there's a bigger myth than realize. I've never found this boys all boys club myself. Good. So I haven't either. But I think there are a lot of women in their areas when they go to meetups. They're the only woman in the room. In fact, there's a book called "The Only Woman in the Room." I know the women that wrote it, Mm -hmm. and there's masterminds out there, and there's networks for women that help lift women up. I'm really trying to integrate myself into that movement. Sure. I, what book would you recommend or what are you reading today? I'm reading The One Thing by Gary Keller. That's a Keller great book. Yep. Yeah, it's a great book. Main gist of that book is like, what's the one thing that's going to move everything forward? And don't spin out and spend your time on a bunch of little stuff that doesn't really drive the needle. Yeah. Great book. Anything, I mean, like, honestly. You know, that one of the things that struck me from that book and that I had never considered up until then was even taking it down to your day-to-day work. What is that? If you think about it, there's typically one thing that if you would deal with head on and take care of, it would take care of 80% of the stress for them. Just exactly. find that one thing. Just boil it down to the one thing. That It's a great point. What was your biggest business mistake you've made and what did you learn from it? Wow. My mistake, I've talked about this on other podcasts, but investing in other markets too quickly. So for me, I had a team 
I have a team in the Smoky Mountains. It's plug and play at this point. I can buy a property, dump it into the system where we're off to the races. But I think there came a point during the heyday of Airbnb in the last 18 months where I felt like I was priced out of my market. So I bought a condo in Panama City Beach, Florida and thought, well, I'll just do one down there and see how it does. And it did fine. It did well. I made money, but it spread my team thin. It it aggravated us. The quality of the guest down there was poor. People are coming to party down there. It's a different vibe. So I actually ended up only holding that property for 11 months. I sold it. I made a huge gain. So it was still, like I said, it was a failure, but I still did well from it and learned the lesson. And then I t- did a 1031 exchange and bought another cabin in the Smoky Mountains. If you could go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would that be? Oh, wow. You got some great questions here. (laughs) I spent tens of thousands of dollars at a very young age traveling the world. Now, I don't regret that at all. It made me who I am and it gave me the love of hospitality because I understood it from the traveler side. But I really wish that some of that money would have went into real estate a lot. Sure. Now you have, I'm going to time this. This is the only one I'm going to time. You have less than 60 seconds and you got to give everyone a single tip or trick that they can incorporate in their business today. Take action and don't just take action without a plan. Think about what you want to achieve in the next 90 days and then go backwards. Day 89, day 88, day 87. What are those micro actions that you need to be doing daily to get yourself to your goal in 90 days. And then if you burn out on it, you have a day you don't want to work on it, what's the one thing, see, it's tying back, that you can do that only takes you maybe 15 minutes that day? Is it Google some research, do some reading, make a phone call? If you want to buy a property in 90 days, you need to get a lender. You need to be pre-approved. You need to have an agent. You need to have kind of the framework. Is it a two-bed, two-bath? What's the metrics of what you're looking for. Get really succinct with that. Set up filters in Zillow. Have your agent send you listing that's going to support that action. Join a mastermind. Start talking to a mentor. Take action. Yeah. That actually leads me to a question that I forgot to ask you, Leslie, is that is there been one amenity or one thing that you've incorporated into your short-term rentals that's been a surprise for you that's been provided the biggest return or the biggest attraction? Tried waffle makers. And (laughs) for a while that came out in review and then I stopped hearing about it. So that kind of was a dud, but I guess it's the, they were really cute. They were like from Target and they were like gray and red. They like stood out in a really nice way. And Hmm. yeah, anyway, I guess that's not that cool anymore, but I definitely think it branding the cabins in a special way. I love it when a guest mentions in the review the name. We stayed at Whiskey Whispers and we had an awesome time and blah, blah, blah. Like that's creating that like emotional connection with the guest to the place where they stayed and they're going to remember that unique name. That's probably the most surprising for me. That strategy plays out a lot in like the Kissimmee Orlando area around Disney World. That's like a big strategy. People are theming these places, but we're trying to theme them, but also name them so that they stand out well. Sure. Leslie, is there a question or concept you wished we would have covered here today? I don't think so. I thought it was very thorough. Great chatting with you. I would just say, watch me on Instagram. I have a lot of things coming out, free resources and things like that. And then I'm working on a book. I'm very excited about it. Yeah. 
So again, it's at leslie.ann.morris. Check out those show notes for that clickable link, but appreciate your time, Leslie. I hope you'll come back again. Thank you so much, Jack. Have you learned at least one actionable step to incorporate into your real estate investing? If so, please consider returning some of that value by leaving a positive review, subscribing to our YouTube channel, or joining our growing network on Facebook and Twitter. You can find links to all of our social media accounts in the show notes. See you next time.